And good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good, good day to be in church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor here at this church that we call Anastasis. If this is your first time with us, welcome. I mean that from the bottom of my heart, welcome. I'm really, really, really glad you're here. Thank you for taking an hour out of your weekend to spend it here with us. I know your time is precious. I know your weekends are busy and it really does mean so much to us that you would join us here today. We believe there's no better place to be than in church on a Sunday morning. Uh, The Bible says this little thing that says where two or more are gathered in his name that God is present. And so we believe that when we walk into a space like this, united in faith, worshiping a God who is alive and active, that we're not just walking into a regular room with speakers and chairs and lights and whatever. We're actually walking into a space where God is active and where there's forgiveness and healing and redemption that can take place because he's present and he's with us. And it's a special, special thing that we get to do. And if you were invited to church today and this is your first time and you're trying to figure out what on earth does the name Anastasis mean? Somebody says, join me at my church. You're like, what's it called? You're like, Anastasis. And you're like, God bless you. Like, I don't know. Like, this is crazy. What does that mean? It's actually the Greek word in the New Testament for resurrection, meaning to be raised to new life, to be raised to new life in Christ, like literal from the dead and figurative for your soul to be resurrected. And that's what we believe, that no matter who you are, no matter the mistakes you've made, if you call on the name of Jesus, you're forgiven you're restored and you're raised to, to, to new life in Christ. And so we've got a big day in store as we jump in to our message series, week four of What is Love. Before we do that, let's go ahead and let's just pray together and then we'll jump right in. Father, I just thank you for who you are. God, you're so good. Um, Lord, I pray that today as we learn and as we grasp more about you, God, I pray that we would just have it on our minds that you are a good and faithful father Lord, that you never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, I pray that we'd enter this space with a heart of gratitude. Lord, I pray right now that whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, whatever we're carrying, God, that we would place that at your feet. We would trust you with it. And Lord, we would just invite you to have your way. Lord, I pray over the words that I'm about to speak. God, I pray that they would be the ones that you want spoken. Lord, omit the words from my vocabulary that you don't want spoken today. Lord, I pray that it's only your message that's heard. And Lord, I pray that everything we do today would bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. It's going to be a good day. We're going to be talking about something that nobody usually likes to talk about. And I'll reveal exactly what that is here in just a second. But if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this is the passage that has been on our hearts and on our minds. But it is a passage we're going to look at directly today again. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It says, love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And last week we focused on that first line, that love is patient, that God's love is patient, which means that he is patient. He's so patient so that none would perish, so that all could find everlasting life in him. 
And then we talked about how patient love is actually persistent, that in this life, you're gonna come up against challenges. People are gonna challenge what you believe. The world's gonna try to tell you that what you're doing or what you believe maybe isn't the wisest thing to do, but you know that God has called you to do something, so you're gonna be consistent with it. You're gonna be persistent with it, and you're not gonna let go of what you hold dearly and what you believe just because it's challenged. And then with those around us, we're gonna be patient with them, and we're gonna be persistent in our goal to love them well. And then the last thing we talked about is how God is patient, but his patience isn't for nothing, but it's purposeful. God doesn't just wait to wait, but God waits with a purpose in mind. For those who don't know him, it's so that they can come to know him. He's hoping that every person would turn to him. That's why Jesus died on the cross, that whosoever could believe in him, anybody, no matter where you've come from, no matter who you are, no matter your family background, that you could find redemption in Jesus. And then for those of us who follow Jesus, he's patient with us as he crafts and molds our character, as he changes us and crafts us into who he's created us to be. And so he's patient with us and his patience is exemplified by his love for us. He's intentional, he's purposeful. And so his patience isn't just because he thinks it's cool to watch us run in circles or wait for a long time, but it's because he cares so deeply about us that he's crafting us. And so let's read that passage again. First Corinthians 13, four through eight. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. And as I read that, every single time, I'm not lying when I say, I just go, wow. There's so much in this little passage. And every time I read it, I'm more inspired and more convicted more encouraged and more challenged kind of all at the same time as I recognize there are pieces of my character and of my heart that God wishes to craft to look more like this, to make me more patient, to make me more kind, so that I don't boast, so that I don't envy. All of those things I believe that God wants to do within us, but I'm really, really encouraged when I read it because of that first line. Love is patient. We know that God is love, meaning God is patient. And so he's patient with us as he leads us through this process of following him as we learn to model his heart. And so today we're gonna take a deeper look at this scripture and we're gonna look at some of the things that love isn't. Last week we looked at how love is patient and kind. This week we're gonna look at this. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And the NIV actually says it this way, and I love it. And it just says, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I'll tell you what, that's one thing that if we applied that to our marriages, if you're married, or if you apply that to any relationship, we don't keep records of wrongs. Like we make mistakes, we all make mistakes. Let's just throw those to the side, extend grace in every situation. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so as we read that, the first thing that comes to my mind when reading that list above of what love isn't is this, is that love is humble. Love is humble. Love is humble. When you see all those things put together, love is humble. Love is secure. 
Love gives, love serves, and it does so generously and naturally. So as we begin today, my hope and my prayer is that we'll jump into this sermon today with a heart that's open, a heart that's honest, and a heart that's humble as we allow the Holy Spirit to shape us. Because there's not a single one of us in this room, newsflash, not a single one of us in this room who's got this whole thing locked down. He's got this whole thing figured out. None of us love perfectly, but we know a God who does. And guess what? It's okay that we don't have it perfectly locked down because like I said a minute ago, God is patient with us through the process. He knows where we are. I think sometimes we think we can play this like hide and seek game with God where it's like, I'll, re- I'll reveal this part of my life to you, but Lord, this part I'm gonna keep hidden. The reality is he knows all of it. That's what makes his love and his grace so amazing. There's not an aspect to your life that he hasn't already seen or doesn't understand Yet he says, I choose to love you anyways. I choose to extend grace to you anyways. And so we're gonna jump in today talking about humility, looking at this passage. And um, I believe that as we do so, we need to place trust in God, remembering what his heart is for us as our father. He wants what's best for us. He really does. But unlike those of us who are earthly parents, uh, who want what's best with our children, he actually knows every time what's best for us. Um, I, I think I know what's best for my kids a lot, and then sometimes I don't. And we do this thing on Fridays, which um, has become a bit of a ritual and an expectation in our home, and maybe that's the wrong thing. Um, but on Fridays, the kids are stuck at home with me all day long. Um, with the way that we're doing things right now, they stay home with me all day on Friday, and We've turned this into a bit of a party. Um, it's, it's a day where we probably eat all the food. I can say this, Hannah's not in the room, my wife. We eat all the food that we're not supposed to eat, okay? We do all the things we're not supposed to do. We miss nap time every time. Like, I don't know how else to say it. We have a blast on Fridays. I think Hannah would be fine if she heard this, I'm sure. Let's just keep it between us, right, friends? Um, I'm kidding. Um, but no, it's one of those things where for me, it is so much fun. And in fact, for my son, Leo, this is the way it went the entire year for him. He's only two. And so he only knew Fridays as like Fridays. Like, right? he was just like, this is going to be a beautiful day. My daughter went to preschool during the year, so she couldn't be with us on Fridays. She's only been a part of the Friday club since the summer began and kindergarten's coming back around. So she's probably not going to be a part of the Friday club, but they both know when Friday is coming, even though my son does not know the days the week. He's got timing figured out. Like he goes to bed each Thursday night excited. My daughter goes to bed saying things like tomorrow's Friday. Like, you know, she just knows we're going to have so much fun. And for me during this time, I go, you know, I think it's actually really good for them that they have this expectation of this day. We're going to have a lot of fun this day. We're going to blow off some steam from a long week. We're going to eat all the food. We're not supposed to eat red dye. Number seven, yellow dye. Number two, whatever it is, we're going to eat it all right. Like every single ounce of it, we're going to get after it, but there's probably going to come a day when like Friday club is maybe not best for them, right? Like it's not as helpful to making memories and maybe a little bit more helpful at like enabling the behavior we don't want. And at that point we'll change it. But what I know about being a parent is that you're trying to be intentional with everything you do. We're not just doing stuff to do stuff, right? Like we're trying to be intentional to lead our kids to a response that hopefully, at least in our case, hopefully points them to a God who loves them and you know, helps them become people who love people more than they love themselves, all of those kind of things. And there'll come a day probably when the Friday club is no longer helpful. And when that day happens, we'll just shift things. We'll change it. We'll approach it differently. But that's the way our God is. Every season is not the same. 
how he crafts you and molds you and changes you is not the same in every season. He doesn't use the same situation every time to change you. He does it over the course of different things, different environments, different people, different situations, because if it was the same repetitive thing time and time again, well, we'd probably get used to it, maybe callous to it, and we'd lose its effect. But our Father in heaven knows what is best for us. He knows what's best for us. And so, as we jump into today's message, as we jump into today's sermon, I hope that we can remember that our God is intentional, he is purposeful, and he has your best in mind. So, with all of that being said, we're going to jump into today's sermon the rest of the way, looking at a passage that comes to us from, um, from Philippians chapter 2. But before we do that, I want us to read through just 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 again. And instead of saying the word love, I want us to put, or I want us to put the word I in its place. So love doesn't envy and love doesn't boast. My question for us today as we begin is, do I? Do I envy? Do I boast? I don't know. But sometimes I think we might find ourselves in a place where, well, it's not all the time. It's not every time. It's not every situation. But the reality is, if we keep our eyes fixed on God, we can see a change happen where we go, I don't envy. I don't boast. I'm not proud. I don't dishonor others. I'm not self-seeking. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but I rejoice with the truth. And this is our goal, is to be the embodiment of love as we follow Jesus, because the truth is this, love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. And as I read this over and over and over again, in order for us to have the right perspective of this and to get to a place where we say, hey, I'm not self-seeking, I'm gonna embody love. I wanna serve, I wanna give. We have to have the right perspective of our Father, not just from the standpoint of he is a good and faithful Father and a loving Father, but also as a perfect God, a God who never makes Mistakes. So in order not to envy, we have to remember that God doesn't owe us anything. That in order not to envy and look at somebody else's life or what they have or what they're called to do, we have to remember God doesn't make mistakes. That God does not owe us anything. God is perfect and anything we receive is generous. And our eyes must be on him and not on ourselves at all times. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter two, and Paul starts this way, and he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any, com any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. If there's any encouragement, any comfort, any proof that God is God, show it by being unified, Paul is saying. Do it by having the same motives, the same effort, the same love as one another. And how are we to do this? He expands on it in verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility, it's everyone's favorite thing to find in others, but it's all of our least favorite thing to work on in ourselves, to grow in ourselves. Because growing in humility means that we're dying to ourselves. Growing in humility means that we're rejecting pieces of our nature that's inherently selfish. And that process is never easy. 
That process is almost always a painful, difficult process to get to. So we love it when we find somebody else who is super humble, super gracious. We're like, I just love them. I need them around in every part of my life. They're amazing. And then when it comes to us growing in that area, we're like, well, this is tough. I didn't want this situation in my life. It's like, well, how did you think we were going to get there? You know, how did you think we were going to get there? It's like the drive to Oklahoma. There's nothing worse than this one stretch of Illinois that just goes on forever. And it's like, I didn't want to go through Illinois. It's like, well, you had to, okay? That's the only way to get there. Same thing in your life. You want to be gracious. You want to be humble. You want to be somebody who people just experience the love of God from. There are going to be things you walk through in your life that just aren't fun to get you there because we're ridding ourselves of ourselves. And so the first step to the kind of unity that Paul is talking about here is humility. That's the first step to getting there. In the flesh, most of what we do is actually motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. Much of what we do does come out of not our love for others, but our desire to promote. We may not know that inherently, but there are so many times we make decisions out of, well, I gotta do what's best for me. I gotta do what's best for me. I gotta do what's best for me, rather than having a wide ranging picture saying, how is this going to affect others? And the word conceit that he actually uses here could be more like literally translated to mean empty glory or meaning like I'm gonna bring all the attention on myself. And I found it interesting. Paul like, found it important to say selfish ambition because he's trying to let everyone know, hey, like, ambition is not bad. Ambition channeled in the right way, right? To, to help others find Jesus. Ambition to spread the kingdom of God. That's really good. We want to do that. To be ambitious in those ways is great. Where it's bad is when we put that word selfish in front of it. That selfish ambition. It's like trying to define the difference between confidence and arrogance, right? Confidence is, hey, I'm really, re I know I'm pretty good at this thing. I really want to help. I just want to help. I don't need to bring glory to myself. I just really want to help this get better. Arrogance is, hey, look at me. Look how good I am. I'm so dope. I'm great at everything. Those are the differences because the goal of confidence is, let's make this better. Let me help you. The goal of arrogance is, hey, can you bring some attention to myself? And notice what he says. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is humble. Love is not self-seeking, but actually counts others more significant than ourselves. More significant. Like the needs of others are above yours. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul is saying, hey, in order to do that, you actually have to count them as more than you. You actually have to count their needs as a higher priority than of your own. We all, you know, we're not all this different from the people that this is written to. This is written nearly 2,000 years ago. But in our world, in our culture today, I believe things are just so inundated by this idea of like self-love and self-care and self-importance. And Paul's instruction is kind of countercultural, not only to them in that day and age. There's a reason he's writing it, right? He's saying, hey, if you want to see this expansion of God's love, this is how you have to do it. He's instructing them because it's obviously not taking place. But to us today, we read these words and I go, man, I focus on myself a lot. Or I think about how this is going to affect me more than it's going to affect others. And I'm so concerned with my self-care or my self-love or my self-ambitions or my selfish receiving of something. And Paul is saying, get your eyes off yourself. Quit focusing on yourself so much. Quit focusing on what you need so much. Place your trust in your heavenly father who will provide for you. And go and love your neighbor, not just as yourself, but actually value him more because that'll help you fulfill the thing that Jesus has called you 
to do. And as I read that this week, here's something that stood out to me and it's just revolutionary. If I consider you above me and you consider me above you, we'll actually form this community where no one's looked down upon. If everyone goes, I wanna value you above me and the people are reciprocating that to one another. We're gonna create this community where people, where no one is looked down upon, but every person is valued in the way that God values them because we know that life is of utmost importance to God. He created you on purpose for a purpose with a dream and a vision for your life and mind. And when we say to one another, I wanna help you follow Jesus the best of your ability. I just want what God wants for you. And then that's reciprocated back. We have this community that exemplifies the love of God. It's amazing. But how do we do it? He says this in verse five. This is how you're going to do it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have a desire that we have to have, we have to have a desire that basically craves humility and rejects ourselves is what he's saying. And this desire comes from Jesus. We're gonna read all about the heart and mind of Jesus here in just a second. And it's all too easy for us just to read and follow the description that Jesus, that he's gonna portray of Jesus here in a second and follow it from like a distance and go, that was really cool. In fact, I think there's a lot of us, if we read our scripture daily, we go, oh, that was nice. That was cool. And we like shut our Bibles and we walk off. And then like 15 minutes later, the very thing we read about in scripture, we just embody the opposite because we've just submitted ourselves so much more to our selfish desires than we have just to what God has put in us. I hope that as we hear this, we don't just go, oh man, that's really nice. I love that Jesus is like that because this is something that is actually meant for us to embrace and imitate. When he says, have this mind, it means it's something we have a choice about. I want you to have the same mind. Have this mind among yourselves, he says in verse five, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The ancient Greek in this phrase has the idea of something like being grasped or even clung to, like held really tightly to. Jesus did not cling to the privileges of being God in the flesh. When he came to earth, he did not cling to the privileges that would have come with being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He did not do that. This means though that even though he knew he was God in the flesh, it didn't actually drive him to seek its privileges. As we close, we'll come back to that here in a second. But notice what it says. He didn't cling to the fact that he was God in the flesh, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This describes how Jesus emptied himself. Though he took on the form of a servant, Jesus did not empty himself of his deity or his identity as God. He didn't empty himself of his attributes. He didn't empty himself of what he was called to do. He didn't say, well, even though I'm gonna take on the form of a servant, I'm gonna be born as a man. He didn't say, that means I'm no longer God in the flesh. He didn't say, well, that actually rejects my giftings that I've got and I'm gonna portray, or that rejects my attributes as a pure and holy God. No, he chooses to become a servant and that's what makes his sacrifice all that more impressive. He wasn't a servant because he couldn't be God. He was a servant because he was God and chose to do it. Think about that for a second. He wasn't a servant because he couldn't be anything else. He was a servant because he chose to be. 
And I wonder for how many of us in the room, there are times that we don't embrace our calling or we don't serve until it's the only thing we can do. Rather than embracing what God has for our lives, we, we choose to do other things and we only embrace it when we can't do something else. Jesus is saying, I know I'm God in the flesh and I can do anything, but I'm choosing to be a servant. He's choosing humility. He's choosing, no matter the cost, to serve you. And so I think if we're gonna be obedient, we have to say, hey, what does love do? Well, love serves and chooses to be humble. So every single day, I'm gonna wake up. I'm gonna choose humility, whatever that looks like in my life. I'm gonna choose humility. I'm gonna choose to serve God no matter the ask. It says this in verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Jesus submits himself to the father and shows his humility on earth. If you remember the story of Jesus being in the garden before he was crucified, he actually has a pretty intense set of conversations with God the Father. He goes to him, he's like, listen, my soul's overwhelmed at the point of death. Is there any other way we can do this whole thing? Like, I guess if I have to go to the cross, we will, trust me. Your will is my will, we will do it. But is there any other way we can do this? Okay, if not, then your will be done. Father, is there any other way we can do this? He knew what was coming ahead of him. But if not, let your will be done. Okay. Let your will be done, Father. And he humbles himself because love is humble. And as I look through the life of Jesus, there are so many instances where God in the flesh humbles himself in a way that he didn't have to, but he chose to, to express love. He was humble in the fact that he took on the form of a man and not a more glorious creature like an angel, right? He came looking like you and me. In fact, the Bible says that his appearance wasn't even all that noteworthy. He wasn't somebody that people would have looked at and went, wow, that is an impressive looking human being. He looked just like you and me in the fact that we're pretty normal, average-looking folks. He was humble in the fact that he was born into an obscure, oppressed place, born in a place that kings are never born, right? He's got animals around. There's no room for him in a sanitary place to be born. He's born where he's born because he was humble, and he was born into poverty, and he was so humble that he was born as a child instead of showing up as a man. I've thought this one through like a hundred times. I was like, God, if it was me, like, Show up on the scene. You could descend from heaven. We could have all the angels singing. Nobody questions whether or not you are the son of God. But that would have been this triumphal entry that would have probably not accomplished what Jesus was going for, which was an approachable king, an approachable God, a God who is humble and seeks to serve. He was humble in submitting to his parents as a child. Think about that. He's God in the flesh. If he had, you know, Tyler and Hannah Perry be his parents, he'd be like, these guys just get it wrong half the time. They have no idea what's best for me, but I'll do what they say. That's what I'm supposed to do. Like these guys just, they get it wrong half the time. Uh, he was humble in learning and practicing a trade. He was a carpenter because that's what his father on earth did. He was humble in the long wait that he had until he launched his public ministry. He waited 30 years to get after it. Think about that. God in the flesh humbly going through this life, waiting 30 years before he can do his public ministry. He was humble in the companions and the disciples he chose. He didn't choose the best and the brightest that society would have said he should have picked. He picked some outcasts, a lot of guys that were kind of on the fringes of society. And he said, I want you to be my closest confidants. I want, to be, I want you to be the ones I train up to carry forth the church. 
He was humble in the audience that he appealed to and the way that he appealed to them. He was humble in the temptations that he allowed and endured. He didn't say, okay, I'll go to earth, I'll leave perfection in heaven, but I'm not allowed to be tempted. I'm not allowed to have that happen. No, we see it early on in his ministry. He was humble in the fact that he took on the full human experience. He experienced weakness and hunger and thirst and tiredness, and he endured. He was humble in his total obedience to the heavenly father and his submission to the Holy Spirit. He was humble in choosing and submitting to death on the cross. He was humble in the way that he died, the agony and the pain. He was humble in the fact that there were men who were allowed to shame and mock him and provide public humiliation to God in the flesh. He allowed this to happen. He was humble. And his humility expresses his love for you. His humility expresses his love for you. He did all of this so that we could find life and life eternal. Hebrews 12, two says, look into Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy was to unite humanity back to God, the father, as he reclaimed his rightful place at the right hand of the father and nothing was going to stop him from doing that. He was gonna be obedient and humble in every step that he took to express this unbelievable transcendent love so that some people, might choose him and find everlasting life in him is obedient and his humility expresses love. So Paul tells us this. He says this in verse nine. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father So Paul tells us, have the same mind as Christ. Choose humility. If this is gonna work out, if y'all are gonna be able to walk side by side, be unified in the love that's gonna express the love of God, you must be humble. And one of the things I thought about this week is how can we do that? Well, love asks this question. How can I lay my life down today? How can I rid myself of myself? What else can I lay down? What else? How many of us wake up daily saying, Lord, I just want what you want. Rid me of myself. Help me to lay down what it is that you don't want in me. Help me to be more like you. Help me to know you. Help me to follow you and to serve you. I believe that in order for us to have the proper viewpoint of how to love those around us the way that God has called us to, we have to keep our eyes and our perspective on God daily, moment by moment. Our devotion, our affection, our attention has to be on him. And I believe that if we do that, it's gonna change how we view everything, like every situation, everything that you encounter and everyone that's around you. You're gonna begin to see people with value in a way that you just never did before because you're gonna place them above yourself. You're gonna begin to see situations no longer as just these hurdles to getting to what you want, but as opportunities for God to craft you and mold you to make you better at loving people in a way that places them above yourself. No longer will our focus be on what we can acquire or attain or achieve. Instead, we're gonna focus on how God can use what he's given to us. So let's start there. Our prayer is God use my life because it's not my life, it's your life. 
God, I believe everything that I have that's good and perfect comes from you. So God, thank you for this time that you've given me. God, I ask that you would use it how you want to use it. God, thank you for these gifts and these talents that you've given me that I'm actually good at a few things. Like, it's really cool, right? Like here on earth, we can actually be decent at things. God, help me to use those, not just to acquire things from me, but to bless others and to honor you with the way I do it. Lord, thank you for my finances. Thank you for my resources. Thank you for giving me this. Lord, I pray that you would use it how you wanna use it. I submit it all to you. Father, thank you for allowing me to feel emotions, have emotions, to encourage one another. But Lord, help me to utilize those emotions to honor you and glorify you. Lord, help me to get my perspective off of myself and onto you. And by doing so, the love will emanate from me to others in the way that he calls us to love. So show me, God, how my life can become less about me, more about you as I care for others around me. Let humility be the cry of our hearts. Let's pray together. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this place today, if you're here today and you would be so bold as to raise your hand and say, I wanna grow in humility. I wanna grow in humility. We just slip up your hand. I wanna pray for you today. Yeah, hands all over the room. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for a group of people who are acknowledging you. You're working their life and saying, I wanna grow in humility. God, I pray that this would be a process where we would recognize your love, your care for us, your patience with us. And Lord, that we would remember that nothing separates us from your love. So no matter the situation we, occur, we incur, no matter the, the, the moments that we walk through, anything that we face, God, we recognize that you are with us every step of the way. And Lord, I pray that as we grow in humility, we would gain such a deeper understanding of who you are and your heart for us and your heart for others. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, if you're here today and you would say, I wanna know the God of love, I wanna know the God who cares for me more than I could ever ask, think, or imagine, and I wanna give my life to him today. If that's you, you can make that decision by slipping up your hand on the count of three. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. So if that's you today and you say, I wanna give my life to Jesus, I wanna humbly follow after him, on the count of three, just slip up your hand. One, two, three. I've got you right down here in the front. I've got you right back there. Welcome to the family of God. We're gonna pray a prayer together and no one prays this prayer alone. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray this out loud together. Say, Heavenly Father, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. I need your grace. Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. You died for me so that I could live for you. Send your Holy Spirit to live inside me, to change me, to make me brand new. Jesus, I will follow you, serve you, and serve others. Thank you for forgiveness and thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Come on, let's make some noise today. It's a good, good day. It's a good day.